Welcome to the Union Jews Podcast. The UK's only All Things Union Podcast. Designed for your downloadable digital delight and appreciation. Hey, yeah, what a parsimonious municipality. All of the residents with any sense agree. So we're here to tell the mayor, you can take a hike. We're gonna go on strike. Hello, hello and welcome to Union Jews, the UK's only all things union podcast. I'm Simon Sapper and the excerpt from that song that you just heard, it was an excerpt from the City Hall Workers Strike Song by David Grovich. We'll be hearing which City Hall and who he's singing about later on in the show. Before giving you details about what's coming up, I do want to say a big thank you to all of you. And there were many of you, many, many of you who made your views known about our last episode on the great post office scandal. Lots of uh, tweets and emails and comments and so on. Thank you so much for taking the time and trouble to let us know that you listened and that you enjoyed what you heard. And if you haven't caught our last episode yet, it's available from your favourite podcast platform. Now, the great post office scandal is indeed a great story, but it did take up an awful lot of time and it meant that we didn't get a chance to enjoy the regular contributions from Professor Mel Sims and Basit Mahmood. So, as promised last time round, in this episode, we have double helpings of Thought for the Week from the Professor for Work and Employment for Glasgow University, Mel Sims. And we have an extended radical roundup in a slightly new format with Basit Mahmood. You'll have to wait and see exactly what we've got in store later in the show. But if you think David Baddiel and Frank Skinner, or perhaps Fee Glover and Jane Garvey, you won't be too far wide of the mark. First up, let's have Mel Sims' first thought for the week. In this contribution, Mel looks at the tricky issue of long COVID, particularly tricky, of course, for how unions make sure the issue is reflected in the negotiating agenda and the way in which employers welcome employees back to the workplace. This week, I've been thinking about the long-term effects of COVID on employment in the UK. And the January saw the release of new labour market data, which in general was presenting quite a positive story about returning to workplaces and the opening up of the hospitality sector, um, issues like that. But one of the real concerns when you look more closely in the data is starting to be evidence of the condition that we now call long covid In recent months, there has been evidence of quite a strong jobs recovery. It stalled a little bit at the end of 2021, probably reflecting the uncertainty of the emergence of the Omicron variant. But in general, there was a return to employment and picking up of some of the sectors that had previously been either closed or working at lower capacity. But what's really startling in this data is the rise of what we call economic inactivity. So that's people who don't have a job, but also they're not looking for work either. 
And one of the particularly concerning issues here is that there's been a big uptick in people who aren't looking for work because they have health problems. And that data has jumped dramatically since mid-2021. It's almost certain that this is early evidence of the disabling effects of COVID for some people. Short-term sick is also high. So that's not people who are currently on sick leave from their employer. These are people who have left the labour market and aren't looking for jobs because their health is currently poor. And at least some of those people are likely to tick over into that long-term sick category. So both of these categories are increasing and increasing really quite rapidly. And it seems very, very likely that this is the effect of long COVID starting to show in the employment data. Now, we'll need to know a lot more about these people who are currently not looking for work because of their health. We'll need to know about how old they are, what kinds of skills and occupations they previously were employed in and we need to know whether their health problems are temporary or whether they're permanently disabled. And whilst we mustn't assume that they're all able to work, we do need to make sure that organisations, managers and unions are all ready to support these people if they do want to return to work. We know from many, many studies about the barriers that people face returning to work after a period of ill health. And those studies strongly suggest that there are a lot of improvements that we can all make to working patterns, cultures of presenteeism, assumptions about when and where people are available to work and so on. And unless we change some of those patterns and assumptions, we really do risk excluding these people with long COVID from the labour market for a very long time. Thanks very much, Mel. Really timely, I think that, isn't it? And it's not just that you have people with long COVID symptoms explicitly, the traditional symptoms of, of, of not regaining your taste properly, of feeling fatigued all the time, of feeling like you've got a, a great kind of weight holding you down. It's not just that, is it? There's also a long COVID effect from people who, with good cause, because they're immune deficient, are still very anxious about being out and about as they would have been pre-pandemic. And there's also, I think, a very significant, perhaps the most significant factor or, uh, that falls under the long COVID umbrella is what about people who aren't suffering from COVID at all, but are suffering from conditions that they can't get treated because COVID has absorbed so much of the NHS resource and will continue to do so. And the backlog is now huge and the effect that has on the economy. So I think there is a really important, significant, multifaceted agenda here that both employers and unions have to recognise and have to find ways of dealing with in a humane, sensible way. And you know, it's no good. It's absolutely no good to have government ministers saying, as the civil service minister did at the end of January, right, COVID's over, everyone back to the office, you've got to get back to the office. This, have we learned nothing? Have we learned absolutely nothing from the last two terrible years about, about uh, flexibility, productivity, durability, sustainability, as it affects the workforce? Honestly, I know unions have got a handle on this. We just have to hope that the employers and government are listening. Now, I'm delighted to welcome back to Union Jews, Bazit Mahmood, editor of Left Foot Forward and his Radical Roundup. Now, we're going to try something a bit different this time, listeners. You think about great conversational duos, um, Skinner and Badil, 
perhaps not your cup of tea. So how about Glover and Garvey? Well, here for their first outing is a new duo on the block or on the airwaves or in cyberspace, if you like. It's Mahmood and Sapper with their take on the stories you probably won't see in the mainstream news media. What you got for us, Bazet? Thanks, Simon. So what's really interesting this week, and this is something that I've been looking at for a while, um, and it's been featuring in Radical Roundups uh, a few times, but also I did a longer piece for this for, for Tribune as well. It's about organising the care sector and what's happening in the northwest, and insourcing care homes and bringing them back into council control and putting care above profit. Well, I mean, that's always very refreshing to, to hear. I mean, are these are these care homes that were contracted out being brought back or are these things that have never been a part of the, like the lo- local authority portfolio before? So it's interesting. What's happened at Trafford Council, so one of the examples we've used in the Northwest, they've got Unison have been organising care workers, which is an incredibly, what they've said, is a fragmented kind of workforce to organise. It's incredibly exploited, low paid, people are contracted out. But what's happened is Trafford Council, for example, have kind of set up insourcing commissions to establish new care homes. Plymouth uh, established a new care, care home system where the council runs it all, whereas in Salford, they've set up, the mayor set up, Paul Dennett set up an insourcing commission to look at bringing back care homes back into council control. And he's offered all the care, care workers something called the Salford deal where he's offering them the, the real living wage. Um, and it's interesting because the whole idea is behind this is obviously government should fix the social care crisis. But what he, what, what these people have decided to do is said that look, we, can, we can't just wait for a Labour government because people are suffering right now. And rather than being reactive, we'd rather be proactive and set up these commissions looking at bringing care workers back in house. Of course, from a from a union a union point of view, the problem with the care sector is it, it's just like. The funding model is bust. It's just we, we as a country, <laughs> you know, we just don't want to put enough money into into it. We, and you have the, the age old contracting out problem, which is you contract things out, terms and conditions become more precarious, uh, and uh, you hear terrible stories, don't you, about people working far more than their conditioned hours, uh, getting paid at the national minimum wage or national li- living wage. So to actually have that sort of strategic approach of saying we, we, this is not just going to be, we're not going to be. The provider of last resort because the private care home sector is in a mess and people are going bust. We are actively, proactively going to have a strategy about about insourcing. And I just think, from from the point of view of terms and conditions, where you've got insourcing into an environment that is that is heavily unionised, is not hostile to unions, it's got to be a good thing. Yeah, you know what, what I found really fascinating was when I spoke to Paul Dennett in Salford. He said they offered all their care providers the real living wage, and some of the national care providers refused to take him up on the offer. Well, because it would hit their profit margins too. It would hit their profit margins, but they also came up with excuses saying that, well, if we pay people in Salford this much, what about elsewhere in the country? And it's very clear that it can sound like a cliche and say, but the primary motivation for these companies is profit. Well, that's what, yeah, I mean, that's, you know, it, it is, isn't it? I mean, you, you're in, if you're in business, you're there to, to, yeah. to make a profit. It's not well, rocket science. So that an employer would turn down a real living wage for, for their employees because... Well, I know, it's, but it's not. I mean, it's, it, it's, it's. I think it's perhaps more widespread than we might think. I, I, yeah. A place I, want, I once worked had, um, I think it was G4S providing the security guards. There was a pool of four security guards provided twenty-four hour cover for this, for this building, and, and, and we wanted to pay them the, the London living wage, and G4S said, no, not going to do it, not going to do it. So, so the, the what, what it, it ended up that they left G4S and we employed them directly. I think. 
but it's it's crazy that the cost model of contracted out public services does not allow for the national living wage let alone the real living wage the living wage it's it's this huge kind of gap in thinking i think about mm. about funding mm. So does that, that leads us on, I guess, to, to care workers and, and, and social workers. I think you said you, you turned up some interesting research by the British yeah. Association for Social Work, the Social Work Union and, and the LBC radio station, of all people. Yeah, so LBC kind of collaborated on this research, I think. So it's spearheaded by Social Workers Union, and they found that almost two-thirds of social workers say their caseloads are unmanageable. So much so that, you know, 97, 97% of social workers, this was a survey carried out by the Social Workers Union, say that, vulnerable people will be better served if caseloads were a lot lighter. And in the last 18 months, you know, during the time of the pandemic, 48% of social workers have raised concerns about cases where they don't believe appropriate action was taken um, just because they're so overstretched. Yeah, I mean, was it something like 82% were talking about having feeling stressed at work? Yeah. 65% say their mental health is suffering. It's just, it's, it's, it's just not sustainable, is it? Is it not, sustain, not sustainable? But I suppose it's very timely, isn't it? Because, I mean, the government is going to go ahead with this social and healthcare levy, levy so-called, the increase in national insurance contributions for employers and, and employees. But it's kind of, you know, that's not even going to touch the side of, of the social care funding crisis. It's all going to go on the NHS backlog, I, yeah. I, I suspect. And, you know, people, people talk about how that's, it unfairly falls upon the less well-paid. And you only have to look at the proposed cap what is it? Eighty-six. You're not. No one's going to pay more than eighty-six thousand quid for their for their social care in their life. Well, you know, eighty-six thousand quid to a millionaire is a lot less than to a care worker. Yeah, and, and one of the most interesting things this week I wrote about was that even Tory think tanks like Bright Blue are telling Rishi Sunak you need to shift the burden of tax. This is a Tory think tank away from work onto wealth because you're punishing low low earners and younger people. Yeah, I mean, yeah, it's, it's this gap, isn't it, in government in in kind of free market thinking which is to just assume that everything's going to be all right if you just let the market get on with it it's not everyone's going to get more exploited apart from the people who are doing the exploiting <laughs> yeah and we haven't got the magic bullet to, to fix it all so so they can but it's it's deeply frustrating but when i read those statistics again you know it's probably more widespread than we think but the sad thing is these are people who are incredibly stressed and at one point um i've just got testimony from one west midlands social care worker who's taking care one child protection worker and, and she told LBC that she's been responsible for 50 children at one point. Wow. Goodness gracious. Goodness. Okay. I mean, on, on the one hand, that, that is, that's, you know, that, that seems just intuitively to be, to be dreadful. That's someone being so overstretched. But the fact that she's able to do it is, yeah. is you, know, that, you know, there's a hero for you. You know, I, yeah. I, I, you know when I talk to, 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 care, to care workers, I do kind of now, now and then, and they, you know, they, they, they tell us a very similar picture, not surprisingly, to what the survey results have, have shown. And I say to them, well, why, why do you do the job? Why do you stay? And all of them, without fail, say, it's about the people. It's about the, it's about the people. It's the people I, I help, the people I look after, and all, all the rest of it. And I just, you know, and I, I just think that makes it even worse because what we're doing is we're exploiting people's good human instincts to want to, for us to want to look after each other. Um, we could talk all day about that. What, what else has crossed your desk in the so last something very days? interesting, which again it kind of links into that and, and poor working conditions. So, this on this week's radical roundup, I wrote about how Amazon uh, GMB gave a response to Amazon, 
who basically decided to stop paying workers for positive tweets. Oh, yeah, I saw this. Yes. <laughs> they, they'd set up a campaign, almost sounds like a propaganda unit, where you pay your workers to portray a positive image online, on social media. And they decided to scrap that scheme because it just wasn't having the reach that they thought it would. Well, I, just, I, I mean, I, it, it kind of makes sense now. It started in 2017, 2018. And, I, you know, when, when you see, you know, the latest news comes up from GMB and others who are organising in there about, you know, what is it? You know, a thousand cases of serious accidents and ambulances being called to their fulfillment centres and all, all the rest of it. So, you know, you, you, you tweet something out saying it's outrageous, sit down and talk to the union. That's the way to have decent terms and conditions. And I get these tweets back from people saying, I work at Amazon and it's jolly nice. and Everyone's very friendly and it's lovely. And I'm thinking, hmm. <laughs> um, but yeah, okay, I'm sure it is for some, pe- for, for some people, but... Um, yeah, it's strange. It's it, it's you know this has been this has been very quietly dropped, hasn't it? I haven't seen a big hurrah uh, uh, about this. Although they, I I think Amazon did say that. Well, if anyone wants to come to our fulfillment centres, we're open for a visit from 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 this yeah. month on, onwards. Well, maybe, maybe maybe we should take them up on that and have a look. Well, I, I know someone who works at Amazon, and shockingly, he said to me, um, "You wouldn't. Do you know how many times you have to call an ambulance to the to the warehouse? It's a lot more common. He said sometimes once every two weeks." once wow. every week given that somebody's suffering injury but on that amazon point there was something that I, I read that was really interesting this week about how amazon's deployed these algorithms that can now well in one case it did the algorithm decided that someone wasn't working to the optimal performance and decided to sack him it was a delivery yeah job. yeah and i just found that just so so they've so the algorithm sacked this this man and he couldn't appeal it because the algorithm had decided it, and therefore they decided the algorithm was perfect. And there was a really interesting piece around how, you know, increasingly, Amazon's at the extreme end of, of, of employing this practice, but other companies have started using algorithms uh, to replace the kind of professional managerial class yeah. in the workplace. Yeah. Now, what these algorithms are doing is taking over increasingly HR functions. And one of the most interesting things is, do we now need to make the argument for the democratization of technology in workplace, which... I haven't seen much on, but I think increasingly a lot of people are saying, you know, whether it's Uber delivery drivers or others, that technology is now becoming the main. Yeah, I mean, I think abs- I think you're, you're absolutely right. It's the idea that that that's that's absolutely come. Prospects, of course, have launched a campaign calling for the right to disconnect. That's something that's been championed and, and thought up actually by our good friend Christina Colclough uh, at the Why Not Institute. And but the struggle is there, isn't it? Does technology control us, or do we control technology? Regular listeners of this podcast will recall James Farrer from the uh, the the app drivers and cab union ADCU, the the union representing Uber, a lot of Uber drivers, who was telling the same thing about people who have been sacked by 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 algorithm. And if you look at the just our last episode about the Horizon IT scandal in the post office, where people were totally uncritical, totally uncurious about the software that's being used and wouldn't admit that there was a real problem with this software. It could be manipulated. It could go rogue. It could, it could end up giving the impression that, that postmasters were, were, were nicking stuff. Mm-hmm. That's the campaign for our times. I think, I think that one's going to be with us for a, for a long time, isn't it? Yeah. yeah. So it's a busy, it's a busy period of time, isn't it? But have we, have we got time, time, time for one more. Is it the, this is yeah, the I mean, longest, the, the longest gig workers strike so far. Yeah. In history, in UK in history. history, the Stuart drivers for Stuart are saying that they have been organised by the IWGB union, 
they've been on strike for well, it's day forty four now. Um, day forty four. Uh, they've been on strike since sixth of December. Uh, drivers employed by Stuart. That's a mind boggling fact here because Stuart is a subcontractor for fast food at Just Eat, and six week of strike action is going on because workers are opposing a twenty four percent pay cut from four pound fifty per delivery to three pound forty, and drivers have to kind of work an extra twelve to fifteen hours just to yeah. make up. That's what it means, isn't it? In practical terms, it's just it's that's 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 crazy, isn't it? And and I think it started off in Sheffield, didn't it? But because yeah. Stuart have got this contract with Just Eat, I think UK wide or England and Wales wise, whatever. I mean, there's action in other places as well, isn't it? Um, uh, Sunderland, Chesterfield, Blackpool. They've all they're, they're, there's been rumblings and, and disquiet there as well. I understand. Yeah, and they've kind of blockaded one of the McDonald's uh, this this week as well. <laughs> but what what was a really shocking and quite frankly disgraceful fact is that whilst they're cutting the delivery uh, rate from 450 to 340 for most workers making them work an extra 12 to 15 hours to make up that lost income now in 2020 Stuart's highest earning director received a 1000% pay rise over the previous year so he's earning over 2 million pounds well that's that's Damien Bond isn't it yeah wow 20 million pounds income so a thousand percent pay rise man at the top and forcing your workers to work it stinks quite frankly well it does doesn't it i mean it, you know okay yeah senior executives get rewarded for for success but if that's what success looks like well who you know a who wants it and b it's just not sustainable it's, it, mm, mm. so i mean the the union the union is looking for what is it six pound per delivery yeah, uh, waiting time payments if you have to wait more than 10, uh, 10 minutes and something to do with mileage as well, I think, isn't it? So, yeah, uh, uh, basically what all, they're, all, they're, all they're asking for is, is for a pay rise in, in line with and, and not having their kind of, you know, pay cut, which is what's happened by 24%. That's what, that's the cut they're dealing with. Well, but let's, I mean, they've got support, haven't they, from the local MPs, from the local council. Strike Fund's got about 14,000 14, yeah, quid, quid, well, which is, quid. well... Power to their elbow. Power to their elbow. Um, that's it. It's, it's been great to have this longer chat about the Radical Roundup. If, if listeners want to find the full Radical Roundup, where, where should they go? It's on the website, Left Foot Forward, every Wednesday. It's always up there. Uh, thank you so much to all your listeners. and yeah, it's, been, it's been fun working with you guys. That's great. Good. Take care. See you soon. Well, my thanks to Basil. I thought that was a, a good 10, 15 minute knockabout of the issues. And I hope you found it interesting. If you did, let us know. You can contact the show at com. You can tweet us at Jews Union. Really love to hear your views on that as it's the first time you've given it a try in that format. And as ever... The companion blog post to this website will contain links to all the things Bazit and I and, and Mel were, were talking about. Links, signposting, background. Just head over to makesyouthink.com, click on the blog's tag, and there it will be. Happy reading. Now on to the second contribution for this episode from Professor Mel Sims, Professor of Work and Employment at the University of Glasgow. This contribution really draws a thread through everything we've been talking about over the last 20, 30 minutes or so. In fact, everything we've spoken about in this series of Union Jews. It starts off with an assessment of what the Americans call the Great Resignation and then looks at what that means for union power. Because, of course, without the means and the ability to implement our plans, they are just dreams and theories. Over to you, Mel.
This week, I attended the online version of the annual research conference of the Chartered Institute of Personnel and Development. And that conference is an opportunity for researchers and practitioners to get together to share findings of research and practical implications. And the closing plenary was given by my colleague, Tony Dundon, who's Professor of HRM and Employee Relations at the University of Limerick. And he reminded us how important it is to explicitly focus on issues of power in employment relationships. And in the context of changing dynamics of work and employment, with both COVID and Brexit hitting the UK labour market at the same time, this is a really important point for us all to keep in mind. The US is experiencing a really tight labour market at the moment, with many workers, particularly those in low-paid jobs, raising concerns about working conditions, pay levels and sometimes safety issues. And many of them are voting with their feet and moving to other jobs that they find preferable. In the UK, we haven't quite seen exactly the same dynamics, but there has been a reduction in the number of workers in the UK labour market. Around a million people have seem to have left the labour market since the start of the pandemic. And some of that is the effect of Brexit, but a lot is older people leaving the labour market as well. So at the same time, we know that employers are desperate for workers. Advertised vacancies have shot up in recent months and many people who were previously unemployed have been able to return to the labour market. And this has the potential to create similar pressures to those that we're seeing in the US. Historically, tight labour markets can have the effect of shifting the balance of power from employers to workers. Uh, but it's unclear whether that's going to happen this time because UK workers have relatively weak trade union organisation. So whether workers can collectively use these dynamics to push up the quality and working conditions, particularly of jobs at that lower end of the labour market, that lower paid end of the labour market, remains to be seen. But it's certainly an opportunity ahead. Many thanks indeed for that, Mel. It, I mean, it really is something of a, of a perfect storm that's brewing, isn't it? You've got that great resignation effect of people exiting the labour market. You've got labour shortages. You've got increases in the cost of living, uh, the increase in national insurance that's kicking in in April, the very steep rise in gas prices, also from April onwards. Inflation projected to to top seven percent later in the year. I mean, it's it's no exaggeration to talk of a cost of living crisis. And then you've got you know, you've got really sort of unhelpful comments, I suppose, in a way, aren't they? Hel unhelpful could be the least of the words we could use to describe them from the governor of the Bank of England saying, "Well, listen, workers, just because inflation's going up and up and up, you shouldn't ask for more money by means of a pay settlement. That won't do any good at all." Well, excuse me. When you've got increasing use of food banks, you've got people having to choose whether to eat or heat. You know, I think the governor will have to forgive us if we take a rather different view to the one he's just expressed. But the key question is, as Mel posed, how can, will unions be able to take advantage of what is clearly an opportunity to redress, if you like, the balance of power in the economy or in work, in workplaces? What are your thoughts? What are you planning to do in your branch, your region, your workplace, your, your union? You can email us at unionjews, it makes you think.com. You can tweet us at Jews Union. Join the conversation, join the debate. I think it's a really important time right now for us to pool our thinking. <laughs> 
Well, we are very nearly out of time for this episode. Thank you so much for joining us. I hope you've enjoyed what you've heard, that it's it's made you think. And of course, if it has made you think and you've got a point of view, we'd love to hear it. You can email the show at unionjews at makesyouthink.com. You can tweet us at Jews Union. And your suggestions for themes that we could cover in future episodes for guests who would make a sparkling contribution to proceedings, all very much welcome. A companion blog containing links, backgrounds and signposting is on the makesyouthink.com website. Click on the blogs tag on the homepage and you'll find it right there before you. More links than a golf course in that blog post, I can tell you. So my thanks to Mel, my thanks to Basit, my thanks again to you for choosing to spend some of your valuable time in our company. We've really enjoyed having you along. You can rate Union Jews on the podcast platform of your choice. That'd be very much appreciated. And we'll be back in a couple of weeks with our next episode, which is going to be looking at the dark arts of union communications. Hmm. Be sure not to miss that one. Now, I haven't forgotten about David Rovich and his song about City Hall workers going on strike. As you probably know, Union Jews is part of the Labour Radio Podcasts Network. Now, that's a portal through which you can access over a 100 shows and podcasts, all based around trade union and organised labour. It's a real feast for the ears, something for everyone there. LabourRadioNetwork.org is where you need to go. And as a result of being part of that community, you get to hear things like Dave Rovich's song, which is all about the industrial action that workers in Portland, Oregon, have felt compelled to take in the wake of a desultory pay rise in in their views. The industrial action is due to start on the 10th of February. And if you want to hear more from David's songbook, you can visit his website, which is David Rovich. That's R-O-V-I-C-S dot com. So here to play us out is David with the City Hall Workers Strike Song. See you next time. Take care. Here in Portland, Oregon, there's an image we project. A haven of progressives is what one might expect. But if the city were as progressive as they say, then you should see what passes for city workers' pay. Yeah, what a parsimonious municipality. All of the residents with any sense agree. So we're here to tell the mayor you can take a hike. We're gonna go on strike. Here in Portland, Oregon, you can hear a lot of talk about social justice. But walking the walk seems more complex. It just sputters and stalls. Time to tell City Hall what a parsimonious municipality. With any sense agree So we're here to tell the mayor You can take a hike We're gonna go on strike Here in Portland, Oregon They say we are essential But the bonus that they're offering Just isn't consequential When you consider most of us Already had to go Move out of town Where we can afford to live, you know What a parsimonious municipality All of the residents with any sense agree So we're here to tell the mayor You can take a hike We're gonna go on strike 
in Portland, Oregon. Lots of things are very cool. There are movies in the parks and nice immersion schools. Very good for some, but not so much for us. Commuting into town on the number nine bus. What a parsimonious municipality. All of the residents with any sense agree. So we're here to tell the mayor you can take a hike. We're gonna go on strike. We're gonna go on strike. We're gonna go on strike. The Union Dues podcast is presented by me, Simon Sapper. It is a Makes You Think production.